Welcome everybody to another episode of the Bioinformatics Chat. I'm going to be your host today, um, Jacob Schweppe, and today I have with me Dr. Devin Schweppe. Dr. Devin Schweppe earned his PhD working with Dr. Scott Gerber at Dartmouth Medical School. After that, he went on to do postdoctoral work at the University of Washington and then at Harvard Medical School. Recently, he has returned to the University of Washington as an assistant professor of genome science. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I actually met you last year at the Genome Science Retreat. In one of those instances, you were schooling me about uh, the polycomb repressive complex. You thought that my ideas on how that worked on the genome were outdated or wrong. <laughs> Sounds just like me, yeah, totally. And then we also competed against each other in The Price is Right. Ah, that was a brutal competition, yeah. Yeah, if I recall correctly, then the finals, we had to guess a, the price of a piece of instrumentation, uh, a piece of equipment that was in your lab. Going to be, yeah. Going to be in your lab, I right. think I, I missed it by 10%, so close. You were very close, but you were very slightly above the actual price. And so me, who was very wrong, but <laughs> underpriced, still managed to win. Classic prices, right rules. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So now you have, you've been a professor at the university. You started your position this fall, right? I started uh, July 1. Wow. What a great time to be starting a new professorship <laughs> position. Oh, yeah. Real no stress period in the world. So. so what's it been like starting a professorship during this time? Moderately chaotic in, uh, in some senses. Uh, obviously, Hits to logistical networks and shipping has been a challenge for getting instrumentation here and getting things set up. But I would say the, the one great part about the scientific community in general, particularly genome science, is that people are not only quite kind and outgoing and helpful, but also very supportive, even and especially in times like this. So, uh, it provides a great resource to kind of, uh, get those things that maybe aren't shipping on time, those reagents that we don't necessarily have on hand because we're a new lab that we can borrow from the likes of Mike McCoss or Judith Vienne upstairs. So. You can just go invade their labs, you know. Of course, we will tell them first. Leave then, IOUs. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been a fantastic uh, kind of resource. And of course, uh, as you know, Bill Noble, who uh, who's transitioning to become the chair of the department uh, in the interim uh, phase is also... Uh, been a great resource in terms of talking to him about setting up a lab and uh, the department. So, with the chaos, there still comes a great support network here and also abroad. Uh, talking to colleagues and folks going through the same thing across the country and around the globe. So, right, I don't envy you that for you know computational folk like me, though. Of course, you know for everybody there are struggles. For computational folk, I so I recently transitioned from being a postdoc at the University of Washington to being a postdoc down at Stanford. And so for me, the transition was as simple as logging out of my BAS terminal and, you know, uh, that I was working on before and opening up a new BAS terminal. And suddenly I was working at Stanford using their computational resources. You know, for you, you had these huge, as you mentioned, these huge logistical struggles that you had to literally purchase equipment and stuff. Have you been able to get that or is it still significantly delayed? Uh, I would say it's, uh, right now about a 50 50. Um, so. A lot of the equipment, uh, we've gotten shipped. We, so we've had some, some really great interactions with some of the sales reps and they've, uh, with knowledge of the current, lo like, logistics situation, uh, helped us out a lot trying to get equipment here as fast as possible. So basically everything in the pipeline 
right now for us is here. Uh, the one thing we're waiting on is the most important thing, unfortunately, which is the mass spec to arrive. So, <laughs> uh, that should be here in the next couple of weeks. And then I think we should have just about everything to kind of be up and running fully. So we're really excited about that. I see. So n- now you just like in the middle of the night, you secretly run over to someone else's lab and use their mass spec. Fortunately, we've had some, um, very <laughs> generous offers from, from Judith and Mike and, and, uh, in terms of potentially running samples, um, if we really needed to. And also the big resource for us is, uh, Priska and Jimmy down in the, uh, UWPR. So the proteomics resource or core here where we can do, uh, emergency sample analysis if, if possible in the next couple of weeks. That's awesome. Uh, have you, other than trying to get equipment into your lab and functioning, have you noticed any type of other, you know, what, how is the experience of starting a professorship going? Uh, I think it's, it's one of these things that's kind of hard to describe and hard to compare because everyone goes through it in a manner the same. But of course it's, I mean, starting now you have COVID starting a few years back, there were other issues, but, um, I would say, as best as I can tell, it's going smoothly. Um, I have, so I hired a research scientist. We're effectively right now looking to hire some postdocs and hopefully going to get some rotation students coming through the next couple months. And all of that seems to be kind of flowing together. It's now kind of the pursuit of funding and making sure we can get these people funded and uh, sustain kind of the lab and lab infrastructure. But yeah, I, I, I guess the, the question of, How's it going for me always drives the idea of how do you compare yourself to how it's gone for other people and all the kind of background things that come into that and complete uh, that comparison. I mean, it sounds like the classic thing in academia where everyone is on a unique trajectory, but everyone is also comparing themselves to everybody else in an unfair manner. 100%. I mean, you don't, why don't you have as many papers out as Bill Noble? I know, right? Why don't I have <laughs> as much fun as Bill Noble? I mean, He's only been here a few years, right? So I should, uh, should just be there. Yeah, exactly. So you were mentioning that you were, um, you were bringing on new people. Are you currently hiring? Are you looking for people for, to join your lab? Yeah, of course. So we're really excited. So we finally just got approval for a postdoctoral position and hoping to fill uh, one of those now and also looking for some graduate students. So we've got a bunch of projects and we're trying to kind of get as many hands on board to increase our bandwidth to, to start getting those projects through and start publishing papers and getting those grants in. So yeah, I'm really excited for trying to get as many people as possible in. So, but of course then there's the, the COVID <laughs> situation and making sure people are safe when they come here and all that stuff. Right. Exactly. If people are interested in joining your lab, how should they get in touch? I would say the easiest way is just go to schweppilab.org. Uh, you can find contact information, and reach out to me that way. And, kind of take a look at projects that we have going on and that will be taken in the future. So. Awesome. So let's get into it. The work that you do centers around this field of proteomics. Can you describe to us what proteomics is? Sure. Uh, proteomics in general is the analysis of uh, the proteome, so the compendium of proteins in a, a given living system. Um, so essentially... What we're trying to do uh, in the early days of proteomics was simply to identify, to establish uh, what proteins existed at a given period of time. Uh, you can imagine doing a, an amino precipitation and trying to identify all the proteins that came down with that. 
um, uh, given bait protein or, or antibody, uh, giving you an idea of uh, protein interactions. And over the last few years, the field is moving more and more towards quantitative aspects, so really trying to understand um, can we compare across multiple different conditions or cellular states or uh, across time and drug dependency to try and understand how the full set of proteins, so somewhere in the order of 10 to 15,000 proteins in a given cell or uh, tissue for, for humans or mouse, uh, how those change uh, throughout those conditions or across time. Um, that quantitative aspect has lended a lot of power to essentially how we can uh, understand biological systems, particularly these highly dynamic biological systems uh, with many, many moving parts. Uh, which in this case, for our uh, type of analysis, is all the proteins. That's awesome. So you're saying that you're able to, you're, you're trying to distinguish between the composition of the, you know, 10 or 15,000 proteins within cells in different conditions. Can you give like an example of why you might want to do that? Yeah. So uh, one just general example, right, is trying to understand um, what are the effects of treating with a certain drug, right? So um Often we know that drugs are designed to be highly specific, but often have off-target effects, say. So one thing we can do is actually look for how do cells respond to a drug treatment and look to see uh, if the drug is meant to, say, degrade one protein and one protein only. Uh, we can look to see are other proteins being degraded upon drug treatment. And particularly what we can look to see is um, if we treat with multiple different concentrations, where do those off-target uh, effects begin. So that's a, a relatively simplistic version of it. But you can imagine other things that uh, we've kind of tackled over the course of, of the work that I've done in the various different labs. Um, we've also looked at trying to understand how uh, post-translational modifications shift throughout um, the cell cycle, uh, how protein interactions change or are established in mitochondria and the general cell during um, uh, essentially post-pathogen interactions. It's basically if, if proteins are involved in a cellular system, we can go after them. And I think that's what's really appealing about proteomics in general. So you're saying that the you have the analysis methods out there that allow you to not just quantify, you know, the broad spectrum of over 10,000 proteins, but that they are sensitive enough in order to identify changes in concentrations of one? Yeah, totally. And I think that's that's one of the really fun aspects of kind of developing these methods is over the years that sensitivity threshold for detecting just that one has shifted more and more. So we can go after um, proteins even in very high dynamic range backgrounds. So you imagine there's a lot more tubulin than there are transcription factors. So even in the case of trying to understand complex biology across this a kind of large dynamic range. The current state of proteomics means that we can interrogate somewhere in the order of 8,000 to 10,000 uh, proteins pretty uh, robustly. And so what that allows us to do, yeah, is get that quantitative information about uh, an individual protein if we're interested in that in the context of the general proteome. But also modern proteomics uses targeted approaches. So if all we're interested in is just that one protein, we can also use proteomics to go after just uh, that one, say, transcription factor, just that one signaling molecule to try and quantify that across these conditions. That's awesome. And so the the primary tool 
that you use in order to do this analysis is a mass spectrometer. Yes, sir. I think you know my next question. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what a mass spectrometer does? Yeah. So essentially what we're trying to do in a mass spectrometer is right in the, the first part of the name is trying to measure mass, right? So um, what we're doing in modern mass spectrometers is trying to very quickly essentially go through the full compendium of a proteome. And the, the vast majority right now of uh, mass spectrometers are analyzing peptides. So rather than full proteins, we use this approach term uh, bottom-up proteomics. So first we digest proteins into peptides and then inject those peptides into a mass spectrometer. These peptides are ionized. And then we can measure the mass-to-charge ratio of those peptides in our mass spectrometer. And that M over Z gives us a clue as to what peptide that is, because every peptide or most peptides have a pretty distinct initial MOVC, but where we really get our sequencing information is we can take that precursor in the mass spectrometer in the gas phase and fragment that to generate a species of, or a set of ions, and these fragment ions allow us to actually sequence a given peptide. We can then take that set of fragment ions and that new uh, potential sequence and match that back to a database, so in this case a FASTA database to identify proteins, and we can use those identifi identified peptides and proteins to then get quantitative information using some advanced methods, such as uh, multiflex proteomics or, or DAA proteomics. That, yeah, that, that sounds awesome. So the, the gist is that you'll have a sample, and you don't know the composition of proteins in that sample, either in the form of the relative abundance of each protein, or even which proteins are in the sample. And so... Why can't, you know, there exist fairly commonplace DNA sequencing methods. Why can't you just use protein sequencing methods? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, I think we would love to be able to do that, but the main problem is you can't amplify peptides, you can't amplify proteins, so uh, it's going to be hard to be as sensitive as, say, your uh, DNA or RNA-seq-based methods. Um, there are some high-throughput single-molecule technologies that are actually actively being developed that are orthogonal to, to mass spectrometry that try and take advantage of some of the um, underlying tech of, of their sequencing modalities, but they haven't been, I think, fully fleshed out at this point. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the big issue is amplification. So we need to have some analytical tool that is sensitive enough to detect what's there in that cell um, without having to generate more of that uh, species. I see. So you're saying that Generally, these samples are very small. And so with DNA and RNA sequencing technologies, you just start off by amplifying it so you get a ton of it, just copying it over and over again until you have the, you know, threshold. But, you know, protein scientists are really letting us down here by not having a clear analog to proteins, <laughs> and so you have to use a mass spectrometer. Exactly, exactly. Okay, awesome. So there are these terms, MS1, MS2, MS3. I think I even recently saw MS4. Oh yeah. I guess my first question is why are proteomics people why do they lack creativity? <laughs> you know, if it's not broke, why fix it, right? So <laughs> um so that whole strategy, so I kind of alluded to it, right? The um the strategy for taking a precursor and then fragmenting it. So essentially the MS one, MS two idea, right, is all um, the MS1 would give us precursor information. The MS2 would give us that fragment information. The uh, MS3 and beyond is generally when we need to do something a little bit fancier. 
um, to break up specific moieties to uh, do specific quantitation. When you talk about the precursor and the fragment, can you clarify what you mean there? Yeah, for sure. So precursor in this case means, right, so in the mass spectrometer, right, we've ionized these peptides. Uh, the precursor would be the M over Z, or the precursor mass or precursor M over Z would be the uh, mass or M over Z for that peptide. So we initially inject those ions, we collect them in a trap um, generally or a different kind of mass analyzer, and then uh, essentially we'll establish what the M over Z is for everything that was injected. So that might be a, a host of peptides. And so we then take one of those peptides, so just one peak in the MS1 or uh, mass spectra, right? And then what we'll do is we'll actually essentially excite the ions that we've isolated from that peak and break them up, right? And so effectively what that then does is generates these fragment ions, right? And so fragment ions we observe in our MS2 spectra. And those fragment ions now are uh, generally, based on the way we essentially excite and fragment these peptides, they cleave peptidic bonds, and that will release specific signatures of uh, individually released amino acids. And what we can do is essentially walk along that set of fragments to then identify the specific peptide that not only had the exact mass that we observed for that precursor, MORZ, but those fragment ions all match to what we would assume to be the amino acids that exist in that peptide. Okay, that makes sense. So, I, you know, I, I, I get the feeling that this is kind of like in CSI when they say enhance, <laughs> that, you know, you get MS1 and you get this very, like, rough picture of what's in there and you see that one thing that you're kind of interested in. You're like, enhance, do an MS2. You pull out one thing out and you get finer grained. And so MS3 is just kind of like that again. Somewhat, yeah. So I think, Generally, the, the use of MS3, just so speci specifically for kind of doing these um, peptide-based analyses, the use of MS3 is generally relegated to when we need to do something really specific, right, with that set of data. So say there's a, a post-translational modification and we're not getting a very good fragmentation of that. Um, so we need to isolate, again, one of those fragments. So rather than um, just the precursor, to fragments, what we can also do then is essentially that same process again, right, to isolate one of the fragments and break that up. So if there's a post-translational modification on there, for example, we could we could kind of analyze that. But we can also use that for um, potentially quantitative methods um, to try and get a better idea of specific fragments, uh, how much of those fragments actually exist in that species. So is it fair to say that the deeper you go into this MS levels, that the more quantitative the results are? So no, not necessarily. So right, so um, you can get highly quantitative information from techniques such as uh, label-free quantitation, you can get which relies more on um, kind of the chromatogram, right? So the, the mass spectrometer is not operating alone, right? It's operating in concert generally with the uh, HPLC or uh, UHPLC. So we're doing liquid chromatography up front and eluding peptides off slowly across the gradient uh, and so we can use some information about how those peptides loot and essentially the signal we get from each individual peptide over time to get some uh, information about the relative abundance of that you know, peptide or species in that sample. Uh, we can also use techniques that uh, go one step beyond and get their quantitative information from both that initial uh, MS1 spectra and the elution of the um, 
of a precursor as well as essentially the evolution of fragment ions. And, uh, that's part of the basis for uh, this data independent acquisition based strategy and quantification lab. And that's been shown by uh, a number of labs, Michael Koss, Rudy Abersol, uh, et cetera, that to be a really powerful technique in terms of uh, protein quantification. So it's not necessarily that it's required to go deeper and deeper to get better quantification, but um, some methods essentially require uh, going to that MS3-based level to, to get quantification. So what would be an example of a use case where you would need to go into MS3 levels and a use case where you wouldn't necessarily need to go into MS3 levels? Yeah, so um, I think the, the latter would be DIA, uh, label-free quant, uh, right? So uh, we don't necessarily need to go get that MS3-based quantitation. The the MS3 quantitation, though, does help with um, this field of multiplexed quantitative proteomics. So uh, multiplexed quantitative proteomics refers to sample multiplexing rather than essentially analyzing multiple different analytes at the same time. Uh, and it's based around this idea of isobaric, or uh, those with the same mass tags, um, and so essentially what happens in this process is that um, peptides are all chemically barcoded with isobaric tags using NHS ester chemistry. These tags are um, essentially on every one of our peptides uh, by the fact that we use trypsin to digest our, our proteins to peptides, which uh, most of these peptides then have uh, a lysine on them, but uh, always have a, an N-termini with a, a primary mean there. And essentially what isobaric tags are is this uh, trifunctional group that allows for binding of uh, the tag to a peptide and then a balancer region that effectively offsets some mass and a reporter region. And this reporter region is filled with uh, stable isotopes in various different ratios that are balanced again by that balancer region. And what it allows us to do is uh, the balancer plus the reporter have the same mass no matter which barcode we're using. But as soon as we fragment our peptides, and at the same time we're actually able to fragment uh, this tag and split the balancer and reporter region, we can actually release the reporter. And these reporters have uh, now, the latest generation of these, have 16 different reporters that can be simultaneously analyzed, which allows us to effectively uh, tag 16 different samples and then release that reporter for this quantitative information. And so what we can do now, right, is uh, in that MS3, what we can do is isolate some of the fragments that contain this uh, TMT barcode. And what we can do then is upon release of that, we release the reporter and the reporter, because it's bound to every single one of these peptides, gives us relative quantitative information about how much of that peptide and protein exist in each one of those samples across all 16 of our samples. And so we get the best quantitative information in that type of technique when we use this uh, MS3-based quantitation. That sounds really cool. So th let me make sure that I understand that, though. Yeah, there's a lot there, so go <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like the main problem is that because the mass spectrometer, as the name suggests, you know, relies on mass, that if you have multiple samples that have the same mass, you won't necessarily be able, or mass to charge ratio, you won't necessarily be able to distinguish between them. Is that correct? Yeah, in part, yeah. So uh, that can generate, so right, you can imagine if we have two peptides uh, and their precursors are very close together, 
that effectively if we have uh, the isolate the region around one precursor, we might pull in some of that other precursor. Um, so we could potentially, one, generate what's known as chimeric spectra, right? So spectra that are uh, essentially just made up of, of both of these different species. Um, one issue, particularly with this co-isolation or co-elution of isobaric species, is that um, in this multiplex quantitative analysis, if we were to isolate more than one species, the ratios or, or relative uh, quantitative information that we get uh, for each one of our individual peptides. So you imagine we've isolated uh, peptide A and peptide B in the same uh, isolation window, uh, and now we're going to get quantitative information that is essentially the median of both peptide A and peptide B rather than being high specificity to just because we were interested in, say, peptide A to peptide A. So we've lost some of our quantitative dynamic range in that case, and so our accuracy has gone down. And so, yeah, like you're hinting at, what we can do is we can use MS3 to essentially go back and then do a specific isolation of just a subset of the fragments generated in our MS2. Right, So MS1 precursor, MS2 fragments. Now we can take some of the fragments that still contain TMT in our MS2 and fragment those further in an MS3. And what we found is through that process, we're able, able to essentially eliminate some of this quantitative interference that we see from co-isolation of peptide A and peptide B. Okay, I think that I'm, I'm a I'm a little bit uh, I'm a little bit lost at this point. Uh, I think that there there are two there are two ideas that were going on in my head for what MS3 can be for uh, what you were talking about with MS3. The first is that with multiplexing, it sounds like what you're saying is that you have multiple samples that you want to measure at the same time, probably for a sample efficiency. If you can run a hundred things at the same time, that's great. And so what you're saying is that you're barcoding each one of your things so that in, in this single mass spec run, you're able to deconvolve which original sample each math, each, each, um, peak came from. Is that what you were saying with this whole barcoding thing? Yeah. So that's, that's a great summation. Um, so essentially, yeah, the release of those reporters gives us individual information for each one. Like, so essentially individual quantitative information for each one of those multiplex samples. Okay. Gotcha. So what I was saying before about how it's, it's not to disambiguate between multiple peptides that have the same mass. It's so that you can run multiple samples and thus the name multiplex. Right. And so it, it runs into this issue, uh, that we were uh, kind of, we got to, which is, uh, this coelution or, uh, co-isolation issue, which that is essentially this, um, this confluence of, so where MS3 becomes useful because of quantitative information, um, for essentially the analysis of these multiplexed samples. Okay. So you, you've explained pretty well how, what MS1, MS2, and MS3 are doing. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the time that it takes in order to run one of these experiments. Yeah. So, uh, there's been a lot of work done essentially to try and optimize, um, essentially the whole workflow for doing these, these type of experiments, right? And so you imagine, uh, this requires two side of things. So the first being that we need to actually prepare these samples, right? So we need to, uh, add these chemical barcodes. We need to have digested these, these proton proteins in the, in the peptides. Um, and so that process generally takes in the order of, uh, two to three days to go from, Here's uh, a cell sample. Say I have uh, 16 different um, 
uh, cell lines, right? And I just want to compare the relative abundance across those 16 different cell lines. And so to go from cell pellets through the process of uh, essentially lysis and reduction in alkylation, and, uh, protein digestion, and then barcoding, that takes on the order of yeah, two to three days uh, to get through. Um, so the next phase then is essentially doing the uh, LC, so liquid chromatography, to decomplex uh, some of these. So we actually do some offline fractionation upstream. So that takes another maybe half day to do and to dry. Um, and then we follow that up finally with when we get to the, the mass spectrometer. Right? So, uh, now we can get our actual data, uh, the things that we're, that we're actually interested in, we can start to observe. And so that process generally right now, um, if we were to run this method that I was uh, hinting at, this MS3 based quantitation of multiplex samples, that process in general takes about a day and a half to actually acquire the data uh, on the mass spectrometer. Uh, and that's kind of the, the state of the art for, for MS3 based quantitation. I see. So it's, it, you know, like I was saying before, it's not just that you can like run up to somebody else's lab and run a quick experiment overnight that you'd be, you know, running up, starting the experiment and then a day and a half later, you know, <laughs> you'd have to hope that they wouldn't notice that their mass spec was running in a corner for a whole day while you were getting your results. So it sounds like sample prep takes several days, but also just running the experiment through the, you know, like doing an MS3 takes a significant amount of time as well. Does it take less time to do an MS1 than MS3? Yeah. So that's, uh, that's a great kind of hint at. So an MS1, we can imagine essentially all the ions exist, right? We don't have to generate any fragments. We don't have to do anything with the ions that have come to the mass spectrometer. So all the steps that require fragmentation in general take some amount of time. Um, the uh, kind of standard fragmentation scheme that's probably the most popular is this one known as collision-induced or collision-activated uh, dissociation. Uh, and essentially, that process in, in most mass spectrometers takes on the order of 5 to 10 milliseconds uh, per fragmentation. Right? And that doesn't necessarily sound a lot like a lot until you realize that in a given um, analytical run, so say, a, a two-hour method, we might collect 60 or 70,000 MS2 spectra, right? So now, all of a sudden, you start to do the math, and now we're spending a lot of time just doing the activation before we're spending the time doing um, actual collection of the data uh, in any one of our instruments. And so it will always cost a little bit of time to do an MS2. And it'll cost, generally, if we're going to do an MS3 in addition, so now we have the cost of the fragmentation and the acquisition in our MS2, and we have the cost of the fragmentation and the acquisition again in our MS3. And that's also, each one of those phases is partially dependent too on um, what type of analyzer you're going to use. So it's a lot quicker to acquire that mass spectra in an ion trap, for example, than it is in a high-resolution trap, so an FTICR or Fourier transform ion cyclotron resonance mass spectrometer or an Orbi trap mass spectrometer, which just takes longer to actually do the acquisition. I see. So one of the reasons that you would want to multiplex is because it takes so long in order to run any one of these experiments. Exactly. Okay. Can you multiplex in MS1 or do you require MS3 resolution to do multiplexing? Well, you can totally multiplex in uh, the MS1. You just have to do uh, stabilized soap labeling. And this is like classic technique that, that Xiaolong and, and Matthias Mann 
uh, kind of made famous with Silac, right? So essentially that's dope in, uh, heavy lysine and arginine or heavy amino acids in general. And then essentially you get two peaks for every peptide now. So one that's heavy labeled essentially with your heavy arginine and lysine, uh, one that's light labeled. So you can get quantitative information. The, the issue there was, uh, generally with the exception of, uh, this technology that Josh came up with, this new code ID idea, uh, you could only get about three different samples multiplexed with Silac. So a heavy, a medium, and a light. And so the idea was we'd like to go beyond just quantifying three samples, right? The more we can quantify, the faster and the higher throughput our analyses are. So uh, we'd like to go beyond three to five, ten, fifteen, twenty, etc. Okay. So what so that sounds like there is significant motivation for trying to move from a single plex mass spec experiment to a multiplex mass spec experiment. What are the challenges with doing that? Yeah. So the main challenges uh, are kind of uh, twofold, um, I would say. So the first one is this one that I hinted at initially, which is um, this uh, kind of quantitative interference that we run into. Um, so there's this this issue where if we isolate more than one species at a time, they both have TNT on them. Uh, effectively, what we run into is this uh, issue where we don't get accurate quantitative information for this. Right? So we move the, um, towards the median of the of the two species. Right? So uh, that can hamper um, kind of the analytical workflow moving forward. The other is uh, more in the the data analysis side, right? So uh, it's one thing to say we can do. Uh, the quantitative analysis of these things and identify these peptides. But right, uh, we're no longer in the days where we're sending a grad student into the basement, um, with a pencil, uh, and a dream to try and annotate every single one of these spectra. Right? There's just too many spectra, uh, to actually get through. Um, so we have to build up relatively, uh, robust, um, methods in silico for doing the full data analysis pipeline on the back end. And we found that um, even now we're still coming up with methods to improve the sensitivity for the detection of these peptides in our mass spectrometers. Right? So it's, it's methods for improving, um, what we call a precursor and how we call a precursor and how accurate we can be uh, with that. And also methods for uh, trying to establish what are the limits of, uh, accurate quantitation that we can actually achieve. How many ions do we need to see in a mass spectrometer? in order to actually call that peptide a, a useful quantitative um, set of information. So I would say those are the, the two main um, areas of, of active development right now. Um, and of course, they're balanced out by, you kind of hinted at it, this idea that uh, multiplex quantitation gives us improved throughput, um, as you kind of mentioned. But uh, one thing to also mention is that um, because we get essentially one peptide ID, that gives us quantitative information about now 16 different samples. Uh, what that allows us to do is um, acquire data that has fewer missing values, right? So we can get more consistent quantitation across these uh, 16 different samples. And we can start to do just kind of some fun things in terms of uh, designing super complex experiments that uh, now instead of trying to kind of assemble uh, data through these single plexes, we can say do a full time course in one quantitative analysis in the master. Sorry, why are there fewer missing missing values? 
Yeah. So uh, essentially, you can think of uh, every time we get a peptide, uh, essentially fragmentation spectra, that's going to generate, right? So that's our MS2. So we've isolated, and we have fragments for our peptide, and we've identified that peptide. We're like, we know that peptide exactly. That's exactly the peptide we know. Um, the benefit now, right, is that when we release those reporter ions, we have quantitative information for 16 different samples, all in that same analytical one, right? It's not that we, um, like we, we effectively are no longer missing data, uh, because identifications can't be tied to quantitation. So a problem often in, in mass spectrometry is that we have slightly stochastic or just generally stochastic, uh, selection of ions by the mass spectrometer, right? So it's all based on intensity and the most intense gets selected first. And, um, sometimes the same ions aren't necessarily seen in every single, uh, pass through the analysis of a program. And so what that leaves us with is if we were only to analyze one single run and then analyze the exact same sample shot again, we would not get the exact same set of peptides quantified between those two different ones. I see. So when you say that there are fewer missing values, what you mean is that because there's inherent stochasticity in the output, that by running it a single time, running a single multiplex experiment, that essentially those missing values line up across everything that you're looking at. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking. Yeah. Okay. So it's not that there's fewer missing values, it's that they line up across the, you know, plexes. Yeah. Okay. Essentially, when we go to remake that Venn diagram, we know that at least for those 16 samples, there's perfect overlap in the identification and quantification. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. So you have a paper that came out recently where you were trying to improve the efficiency of MS3 uh, data gathering. Do you want to give us an overview of that? Sure. Uh, so this is a a paper that uh, recently came out in Journal of Protein Research, um, and it focuses on an idea of improving um, kind of the acquisition efficiency for these MS3-based quantitative workflows using multiplexed quantitation. So all these uh, little nodes that we've been talking about all, all along have, have kind of built to this. Um, so one thing, um, of course, that you kind of hinted at is that to acquire an MS3 just takes longer. Right? So if we're going to do one MS1 and add an MS2, that takes uh, a certain amount of time. If we add an MS3, that takes even longer. Um, and what I've kind of mentioned is that if we move into high-resolution uh, traps to acquire this data, those require long periods of time, so 80 to 100 milliseconds to actually acquire the spectrum. So one idea we had, and so um, Brian Erickson published some proof of principle data around this. Uh, when he was part of their key lab, um, looking at whether or not we could essentially eliminate the acquisition of these MS3 spectra uh, under certain conditions. And so one thing that we actually knew going into this, right, is that when we go to do our mass, spectrome mass spectrometric analyses, um, due to this stochastic nature of uh, essentially sampling these precursor ions, we don't necessarily always generate an MS2 that matches to a given peptide that might be in our database, right? So in the typical experiment where we run a whole cell lysate, we might identify peptides for 
on the order of 40 to 60 percent of the MS2 spectra that we acquire, right? Which means we're leaving then 40 to 60 percent uh, of those MS2s on the table because they don't provide relative or relevant information um, about the proteins in that sample. And this could be because maybe we didn't consider a post-translational modification, or maybe there's some abduction of, of some set of molecules that uh, we didn't anticipate and therefore couldn't identify. Um, so one other um, aspect of this, right, is that if we're going to do this MS3-based method, so MS3 gives us better quantitative accuracy, but also requires us to spend time acquiring this uh, more expensive uh, time-wise MS3-based quantitative scan, that means 40 to 60% of the MS2s don't generate a peptide in, that we can use, which means that 40 to 60% of those MS3s are effectively useless to us, right? And that's in the best case scenario. That's when we're running a, a, a effectively a whole cell lysate-based sample. If instead what we do is we're running fractionated samples, that, that relative number of uh, useful MS2s goes down to 18 to 25%, right? Which means that 75% of our, our MS2s aren't actually giving us useful information, which means 75% of our MS3s aren't giving us useful information. And so the idea, right, that, that Brian pioneered and then, and then we started building upon was this one where if in real time, so literally as the, uh, mass spectrometer, the instrument is trying to assess what ions to select and fragment and get quantitative information for. If we could ask every time an MS2 is acquired, whether or not we should actually acquire the subsequent MS3, that would potentially let us filter and remove a lot of this spurious kind of triggering of MS3s that are useless. And so, of course, that, that led us to a question of how could we do this and uh, what we came up with is this idea of uh, offline what we have to do and what I kind of hinted at in terms of the bioinformatic pipeline downstream of mass spectrometry is that we have to actually match those fragments and those spectra back to peptides and proteins, right? That's that's the real, the meat and potatoes, the, the stuff that we're interested in. So to do that, we use this, this idea of database searching, right, which is essentially generating theoretical fragments and matching to those theoretical fragments for every peptide that potentially exists in a, in a given proteome, and then using that information to essentially assign and score spectra based on peptide spectral matches, or PSMs. Um, and so our question was, we do this process offline. It's relatively fast. Is there any way we could do this online, in real time, with database acquisition, right? So then we had to be really, really fast. Right. So it's no longer we can like take our time. Oh, it doesn't matter if it takes 10, 20 minutes. It doesn't matter if it takes 60 minutes to get your, your peptide identification. We need to get our peptide identifications on the order of two to 10 milliseconds so that we can actually use that information in real time with the mass spectrometric run. And so essentially what we did in, in this paper, um, is we took an open source, uh, peptide database search algorithm termed Comet, which was developed uh, here at the University of Washington by Jimmy Ang, who also developed Sequest, which um, is one of the, the first and preeminent peptide spectral matching uh, algorithms, which helped kind of establish the field of proteomics back in 1994. Uh, and we started building on this, this open source uh, framework to try and do real-time search.
Yeah. So one of the reasons that I really like this paper is because rather than just having a computational problem where it's like, oh, I have a data set and I need to do something. And, you know, usually right now it's, I'm going to train a neural network and it takes forever, but then, you know, there's super high accuracy or whatever. But this is actually building something into a system that needs to be working in real time because it, it, it's modulating the data collection that it, like, with what you're facing that, uh, the time it takes to run an MS3 is very high. And a large part of this is spent scanning useless regions of the, you know, of the spectrum. And so what you're trying to do is say, as this is running, can we use the information we've already gathered in order to determine, as you said, do I, you know, in order to determine, um, should I run the more expensive calculation on this region at all? And so I just thought I'm really fascinated by these applications because it involves not just theoretically being like, oh, we have a system that, you know, can work well. It's that, you know, this is really going to control a machine that is generating data. And so a, a question that I have coming from more, more like a machine learning background is that whenever you build these systems, there is a risk that because you are changing the data acquisition process, that you end up with bias in the underlying data. Did you look into that and what did you find? Yeah, totally. So uh, it was something we were really concerned about um, kind of going in because we know that a lot of what we do, again, the driver for this is right is all always the, if we were to do the canonical method and then do our offline analysis, how does that compare to doing our online analysis? What do we lose? What do we gain? Where are the, the frictious points? What's What's the problem? Um, if there are. And so we're really concerned about essentially leaving good quantitative information on the table um, when we began to do these analyses, right? So um, what we did is actually we began um, with a really a simple, really simple pipeline, right? So it just essentially went through and it said, um, here's a score. If the score is good enough, so in this case, it's called a, a cross-correlation score. If the cross-correlation score is uh, above a threshold, uh, go ahead and trigger that SPS MS3, collect that data, give us quantitative information for this path then. Um, and we noticed that that worked pretty well, right? So what we could do is just set that threshold really low. Um, even low thresholds essentially eliminated large numbers of these um, noisy or uh, unmatched or un like essentially useless MS3 based acquisitions. And so what we, we noticed though is that we thought we could do still a little bit better. Um, and so offline we have this, this full platform to actually estimate, um, false discovery rates for our peptides. Uh, and these false discovery rates are helpful for ascertaining what we actually believe to be real peptides coming from the proteins that we believe should be in that sample. Um, and generally offline, what we do is filter that down to a, a false discovery rate. So all the peptides from a given round get filtered down to a, a false discovery rate of 1%. Right. And so what I did online in, in this paper is essentially took, um, part of that false discovery rate based estimation online so that we could use a similar framework that allows for more flexibility and is, um, dependent on or allows us to essentially do dimensionality reduction of a larger number of potential parameters from a, a given peptide spectral match uh, instead of just relying on this one score, um, which made us more sensitive. But of course, then they, 
the fear is that we filter still to a, a 1% FDR online in real time. Maybe we messed up. Maybe the algorithm, um, for, for how we're doing this estimation was, uh, just not quite trained right. Maybe it wasn't, uh, the best background training set because we're relying on previous information from this single analytical, uh, run to generate the training data, uh, for the, for the rest of this run. So what we did is essentially just opened up the stringency, right? So instead of using a, a 1% false discovery rate like we would require for our offline and for establishing good databases and data sets, we essentially scaled that way up to have a, a false discovery rate on the order of 10 to 20%. And the idea here was that we don't necessarily mind if a few too many MS3 scans get acquired. That's not the worst. We just don't want to acquire thousands and thousands of these, right? So effectively what that allowed us to do is we're not entirely as stringent as possible, but it allows us to try and uh, get around this issue of um, severely influencing what we're collecting quantitative data on. Uh, and by that, I mean essentially not collecting quantitative information when we should be or when there might be a good path that in there. I mean, that, that seems like a, that seems like a very reasonable idea I think that there's a, there's a little bit of a distinction between that. Uh, there's a distinction between correctness and bias, where what you want to do is make sure you don't miss something. And so essentially what you're trying to do is balance precision and recall. You wanted to make sure you had high recall, where that, where recall is, you know, making sure that when something really is there, that you are scanning it. Um, but I guess what I was asking was a little bit, um, was a little bit more about bias. Whether or not, even though the things that you're identifying is correct, whether or not you are systematically excluding a certain class of peptide identifications. Yeah. I mean, so I reckon that could be, there is some potential for that, um, in a certain subset. But I think one thing we, right, we tried to lean towards in terms of this bias. So it, it comes back to how we do our offline analyses and our online analyses, right? It's, um, one of the, the reasons we stuck with Comet, right, this open source platform to do our online analyses was that we are literally doing the exact same scoring, ranking, uh, and peptide spectral match assignment online that we do offline. So effectively, if we're biased, we're going to be biased online and offline. And that's just a general problem for, um, these peptide spectral matching schemes, right? So that was a, a, a big push, and Steve was really uh, excited about this, um, to really do the exact same scoring online and offline. So there's no potential bias. And I, I think you hit a hint at something, too, that's uh, an important thing to address, too, which is, like, if you run uh, different search algorithms, there is some slight bias just running different search algorithms across, even on the exact same sample, right? Yeah. It might not be huge. You might get a few hundred extra proteins out of a, a data set of thousands of pr- uh, proteins, right? That are just a little bit different. They, uh, they were picked up by one algorithm and not another algorithm. Um, but I think, yeah, yeah. Like you're kind of hinting at one of the important aspects of this for us is do the exact same online framework. So the same false discovery rate estimate based estimation, the same monoisotopic peak estimation, the same peptide spectral matching, all of it, this whole pipeline, we're going to try and condense that down from a something that could run overnight to something that we need to run on the order of milliseconds. 
That makes sense. That you're you're essentially running the same algorithm, and so there may be bias in that algorithm. But that's not anything new that you've introduced. Okay, so then I guess let's talk about whether you were successful. And I guess there are two ways of measuring success, which is in terms of number of identifications and in terms of speed. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I would also just throw in the caveat of, could we make this work in the first place? <laughs> success. And we got it to work, which I think we were all just stoked about. And this also kind of builds off. Um, I, I don't think I would do just, there, there was previous work by uh, like Derek Bailey too, to try and uh, develop kind of similar frameworks for real-time searching. And I think the application to, to multiplex one is where it really hit the ground running. But so in terms of success, I'll, I'll get back to the question. Um, so speed wise. Yeah. So, we had to go through a number of iterations. Um, and again, Jimmy Ng uh, was instrumental in this in terms of development of a pipeline that could work fast enough. And also um, with an actual instrument in the field um, to do this. And so we actually, we tested this over and over and over again. This took multiple iterations to kind of drill down and figure out where our memory leaks were and, uh, all the issues that inherently built up and success in terms of that was, um, what we measured is actually, if we just take a, an SPS MS3 based analysis, right? And we just look at the average time it takes generally to acquire an MS2 and then the difference in time it takes for when that MS3 finishes being acquired, right? Or, or starts being acquired. Um, that's about 500 milliseconds. Right, so that's our operating time. That's the maximum operating time we essentially have. We have 500 milliseconds to do everything we need to do. Um, and so when we re-optimize the search and re-optimize the search and re-optimize the search, what we were able to actually get that down to is if we're going to do a full yeast proteome analysis, we could actually do a search in 7 milliseconds. We can do the monoisotopic peak estimation in about uh, 100 nanoseconds. We can do the... Um, False discovery rate estimation on the order of, uh, depending on how big our training data set is, somewhere between 10 and uh, 20 milliseconds. And so all that time combined for like this use data set, right? We can do that well under 50 milliseconds, which is 10% of the total time that we had in the first place. So I would say uh, that was super successful. That was awesome to see the first time we, we got that going. And I think Jimmy and I were, were both really excited uh, by that. And so even when we scaled that up, when we started looking at Whole human data sets, right? So much larger databases to, to do these peptide spectral matches with. We found that we could still do those, um, searches in about, uh, 10 to 20 milliseconds. So still super fast, um, for doing this, uh, real time, uh, because we're still way under kind of that MS2 to MS3 based, uh, time difference. So I would say successful. Check. Um, the other thing we really <laughs> were curious about, right, is, uh, where can we push this to, right? So, okay, we're more efficient. We can make these calls online. We can um, do real-time searching, and it's great, and the algorithm works. And um, All right, that's fine and dandy, but how can we actually prove that this is useful for the community and, and should be implemented? And so what we did is we targeted um, kind of a, a standard analysis we would do in our lab, right, which is replicates, a biological replicate analysis of, uh, different cellular systems. In this case, just three different cell lines. Uh, and we did this across an 11 plex, so 11 different um, biological replicates of three different cell lines. Um, and so what we wanted to compare effectively was the state of the art, right? Is this SPSM is three based analysis. It's the most accurate. 
uh, the most robust for quantitation. And we know it takes about 36 hours to acquire data using this method. So what we asked ourselves is if we're going to acquire somewhere on the order of 60 to 70% fewer uh, MS3s, right? Could we potentially reduce the acquisition time and get the same number of quantified proteins in the end? Uh, and so what we did is we actually just cut our instrument gradient time, so our acquisition time in half. So a normal method set would run for 36 hours. With real-time search, we're going to run that for only 18 hours. And then we just did a comparison, right? We took all the data, both went through the exact same pipeline, all the exact same quantitative filters. And then we asked how many proteins and peptides we actually quantified in the end. We were actually able to observe that in the SPSMS3-based analysis, we could quantify just over 8,000 proteins in 36 hours uh, across all 11 different samples, right? So uh, about three hours per, per sample. And then using real-time search in this analysis allowed us to quantify the same number of proteins, or nearly so, in half the time. So 8,000 proteins with real-time search in about 18 hours. And so now we've doubled our acquisition efficiency, which means we have twice as much instrument time to play around with. So did you continue to push that? Like what happens if you run it for only one hour? Yeah, that's a good question. So that's, uh, that's something we're trying to do right now. I think is, um, the question is how far can we push that? Can we right now, right? This whole pipeline is predicated on the idea again. Um, chatted briefly about it before this offline fractionation idea of fractionating down to 12 fractions. Um, and the question is, do we need to fractionate to a full 12? Could we get the same information from 10 fractions and do that with two fewer analytical runs uh, in the master chunker? Could we do it with eight, six, four, right? And every step, maybe even if we had to do a slightly longer LCMS MS gradient, that would be fine because we're still doing fewer fractions. And so this is still kind of an open question and, and we're hoping to kind of see where the threshold is for, even if we set it, at, we have to quantify at least 8,000 proteins. Where is the threshold for uh, for how far we can push real-time search? But kind of the the canon right now is somewhere between yeah 16 to 18 hours for doing most of these analysis. That's awesome. Yeah, that seems like a super compelling line of work, being able to run these expensive you know experiments a lot faster. I imagine would push the field forward. You know, if you could actually just sneak into somebody else's lab and run an experiment, <laughs> courtesy of Devin Swepe. Yeah. Um, well, see, that that's would... how we could do it, right? It's like, we'll just make them both a real-time search and then it runs the same overall amount of time, but we both get something out of it. Exactly, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So you were saying that uh, other people in the past have been less successful at the same general idea. What do you think the major breakthrough was that allowed this to work for you? Yeah, I would, I would add a small twist. I don't think they were necessarily less successful. I think it was the applications weren't as potentially beneficial as this MS3 based quantitation. And I think the main things for that is previous iterations of this were primarily focused on, um, maybe we can identify a peptide and change the fragmentation scheme. Um, and maybe that'll help us, but. One of the issues there was it gave some more information, but it didn't robustly really improve the efficiency of these analyses. I think the striking thing and the most important thing for 
for this current iteration of real-time search is really um, the most accurate way to do multiplex proteomics relied on this really time-expensive SPSM MS3. And that is this huge hurdle to get around. Right? And so people sometimes just don't do the MS3. They'll just do high-res MS2 instead of that, uh, which is much faster, uh, but more essentially introduces more of this quantitative interference. Um, so I think the the big thing that lended to the success of this project and, and the proof principle by Brian Erickson beforehand was this idea that we had an issue. We had a, a big problem that we were trying to address, which was SPS MS3 data collection is a pain in the butt, and we need to get around it. And we'd like to do fewer if we can get away with it. So how can we get away with it? And before, there was not really that killer application for for doing this. Right? So um, I think that was the the big boost that we gave to at least multiplex quantitative proteins. Sounds like a compelling reason, you know, that now people actually want to do it. So I guess as a as a final question, uh, this was a system that was meant to be integrated into a MS spec. What do you see the prospects of this being the standard data collection method for MS3? Yeah, I think uh, more and more I hear uh, people talking about using this. I think um, the big thing is uh, that we, you kind of, again, hinted at is that this has been fully integrated now into like the latest set of, um, uh, of thermo-based uh, high-resolution mass spectrometers, the, the Orbitrap Eclipse series. Um, and so I think that, right, in in all bioinformatics pipelines, right, if you can get that inter- integrated into commercial products, if you can get that out there to the general community uh, for use rather than kind of just one-off lab products, I think uh, that has been a huge boon for actually getting people not only interested in it, but using it. And I think I am encouraged by folks sending emails uh, to my lab and Steve's lab and asking about uh, optimizing these methods and getting them up to speed and how they can use them in their labs. And I think that, um, uh, well, daunting in terms of the number has been exciting in terms of uh, people still being stoked about kind of using this tech. That's awesome. That's that's really exciting to hear that pe- not just people are using a one-off, but it sounds like companies are adopting it in the you know pipelines they provide along with the tools. So thank you for being with us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and like we mentioned earlier, you're currently looking for grad students and postdocs. And where is it they can go to apply? They can uh, head over to schweppilab.org. Uh, Schweppi is spelled like the ginger ale Schweppes without the S. Uh, and then just lab.org and, uh, come visit us or feel free to shoot me an email. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.